rest of us, let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Genesis 1. We're going to be in a lot of different scriptures today, but we're going to start there in Genesis 1. So we're continuing our You Asked For It series this week. We've taken some questions that you guys submitted, and we're going to answer them um, as pastoral staff. Well, we've spent the last couple weeks talking about the problem of evil and suffering in a broken, sinful world. Those were questions that kind of took several questions that y'all asked and kind of put them together and tried to answer them. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to answer a question that was specifically asked. Um, and this is it. So this is, the, this is the question. How would this church respond if a gay married couple came to church and would like to become members? Happy birthday, Dan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually volunteered to answer this one. This is... This is this is an important question. This is a question that's very applicable to us in our day and age, right? Like, what are we going to do? And we have a lot of bad answers out there. Um, on one extreme, we have those who would say that our answer ought to be complete and utter acceptance, celebration. That's, that's probably the most common in our culture today, right? On the other extreme, we have those who would say, they would respond with, Homophobia, anger, hatred, utter rejection. We need to do better than either of those. We need an answer that comes from the scriptures, right? We need an answer that's not just our personal experience, our personal biases, our culture talking to us. We need an answer that comes from God's word. that doesn't just read our assumptions back into the scripture, but that actually flows from what God has to say. Now, before we answer this question, we're going to answer this question towards the end of the sermon. Um, I want us to cover some big picture Bible themes that really help us to answer this question. Because sometimes when we just look really at a very narrow bit of information, we miss the whole, right? Um, so I'm going to show you some bits of a picture I took on my vacation last month. See if you can guess what it is. Well, the lights are really even bad, so it's even worse than when it was dark in here when I was testing it. Okay, so that's part of the picture. Anybody got a guess yet? <laughs> that's, well, that's part of the same photograph. That's also part of the same photograph. So is that. Anybody got a guess? So, it's Old Faithful. <laughs> Anybody get that? No. We can, we can very easily miss the, the big picture when we just focus on one little bit. We can take things out of context. Um, we can miss the overall theme of what God is doing in the world and in the scripture. And so when we jump to just the verses that talk specifically about this topic, about homosexuality and homosexual activity... We're going to get there, but we need to take a, bit, to just take a step back, look at some of the big themes that help us answer this question. We're going to start with who we are as humanity. So if you're trying to cover, flip along through the scripture in this, you're going to need your outline big time. Otherwise, they're going to be up on the screen. We're going to cover a lot of scripture today. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis 1. This is the story of humanity, um, and we're going to start with that we are image bearers of God. Genesis 1.27 says this, when God creates man, he says, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Rob talked about it a couple weeks ago, a little bit, but it's at least that we have emotion, intellect, the ability to choose. There is something to be known about God in the creature that he has made, people. We are the highest of God's creation. There's something inherent with dignity and honor in being made in the image of God. We are loved by our God who made us. This is an important truth for us to remember about human beings. Look around. The people that are around you are made in the image of God. Now think about your worst enemy. That person is made in the image of God. Think about this. This should affect how we view people. 
we keep going in that chapter, God looks out over everything that he has made and he says, what? It's very good. If only we, that was the end of this, not the, it's not the only, if only it was the end. If it was the end, we would be in a lot better shape. But that's not where the story ends. We don't live in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, do we? Genesis 1 and 2, everything's great. But we live in a Genesis 3 world where we're all scarred by the fall. Where sin affects every aspect of our lives. Everything has been horribly messed up by sin ever since our first parents made the choice to do things their way instead of God's way. And we have to deal with the consequences. We are damaged by the fall. That image of God has been messed up. It hasn't been erased. It's there. But it's hard to see sometimes. We are casualties of the fall. And worse, we're active participants in sin. None of us are exempt. Paul talks about it this way in Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He says this a lot in Romans. None is righteous, no, not one, in Romans 3. No one understands, no one seeks for God. They all have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, later, there is no distinction. This is a little bit more familiar verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, none of us as a human being, is exempt from the effects of sin. And that affects everything about our lives. Don't worry. The next verse says, good news is coming. Just, we are justif- can be justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But as we, as we continue to think about this, what does sin do to us? How does sin affect us? Um, there was a song a few years ago. Maybe you heard it talking about how we were born this way. Um, it was used to celebrate all kinds of different behaviors. A lot of it, it was nonsense. Um, but the truth of the matter is, when it comes to sin, we were born this way. <laughs> this is how we came into the world. David says this in Psalm 51. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is what we sometimes call the doctrine of original sin. Um, and total depravity, how those are things are connected. Like that sin of Adam affects every human being. We are not all as bad as we maybe could be, but there's no part of our lives that's untouched by sin. And we have to recognize that. And as we look out on our world, like not just out there everything's affected by sin, but in here everything's affected by sin. How we view other people is affected by sin. And so we need to look at the scriptures and say, what, God, what does God say about people? Um, and what does God say about even our own sinful desires? Right? In James, it talks about how, how this works. Each person is tempted to sin when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's sort of this picture of fishing. When you put something on a hook and it grabs it, and what does that lead to? The fish's death. Because sin does the same thing. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what sin does to us. This is, who we, this is who we are without Jesus. We need to look at our world this way. Um, and the crazy thing is that our desires lie to us, don't they? Like, tells us that things are good when they're not tells us that, that this is no big deal when it can lead to our destruction. This is what sin does. It affects our desires. It affects our motives. You ever done anything with a pure motive? I don't think so. <laughs> it affects how we view ourselves. It affects how we view our identity as human beings. Jeremiah 17 says this, the heart, in the Old Testament, the heart is 
not just how we think of it as where we feel, but it's also where we think and make decisions. And it says the heart is deceitful. It lies to us. It's a deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're in bad shape, right? This is where sin leaves us. We are image bearers who have been radically marred by sin. We saw it in the scripture that we read for the scripture reading. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Which we just saw unrighteous. That's pretty much all of us. Well, that is all of us. Not pretty much. That is. But it, do not be deceived. And then it gives a list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. We'll come back to that. Nor thieves, nor the, re- nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is where we are left because of sin. But thankfully, that's not where that passage ended, right? We already read it, so you know. Um, The gospel is good news for everyone. We can be changed by Jesus. It says in that verse, such, all those list of terrible behaviors, terrible activities, it says, such were some of you. He's talking to the Corinthian church, believers. But it says, you were washed, made clean. Sin leaves us horribly dirty. You ever felt dirty because of your sin? Yeah. Right here. You were sanctified. Sanctified is to be set apart for God. And you were justified. Justified is to be declared right in the eyes of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we can be the worst of sinners and God can still save us. No one is beyond God's ability to save. When we look at our neighbors, when we look at those who we might even see as enemies, we need to remember this truth. No one is beyond God's ability to save. Paul talks about it like this in Ephesians chapter 2 talks about our state and then what God has done about it. You were dead. Dead is dead. Can't do anything. In the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Maybe destined for wrath is a good way to think about children who were destined for wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then two of the best words in the whole Bible, but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. So death to life, together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What is grace? It's God's unmerited favor. It's totally undeserved. We use that word a lot, and sometimes we forget what it means. We think that we can deserve grace, and that's just not what that, that's not what that concept is. We, there's nothing in us that makes God love us. It's, it's, it's in him. It says, by grace, you haven't said. His favor is demonstrated because of who God is, not because of who we are. Continues in, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Like you think you've seen grace now. Just wait. And kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, that you have been saved through faith. And here's, here's the part I want us to focus on as we think about the people around us and our, think about ourselves. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. If, if what God has done in saving us is not based on something we do, that means anyone can be saved because it's all about God, what he's doing, and not about what we're doing. And he, and he doesn't leave us there. It says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a life that flows out of what God has done for us in the gospel. So that's kind of the big story of the gospel, right? This is an important background to how we answer questions regarding sexuality. We're going to get there and, just, um, and look at what God's plan for this is. But do we treat people like the gospel is true? Do we? That they're image bearers of God who have been affected by sin, who can be saved through what Jesus did on the cross for them if they will respond in faith. Do we believe that? Do we think about our neighbors like that? How about your Muslim neighbor? How about, to get political, how about your liberal or your conservative neighbor, depending on what part of the political spectrum you're on? How about your gay brother, your lesbian aunt? Do we believe that the gospel really is good news for anyone? So as we, we keep going, the, the rest of the points will be shorter, don't worry. Um, sexuality is God's good gift, and we're going to need to look at what God has to say about what his design was. And we, we um, talked about it a little bit when we hit Genesis 1.27. So there's this, this picture that happens in Genesis 1 and 2 where God makes Adam humanity. He starts with Adam, the man, right? And then... It says, male and female, he created them. So something is connected to what it means to be in the image of God, that we are male and female. So the one, humanity, becomes two, male and female. And these are meant to go together, as, we, as you see in the, the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2. Because Genesis 2 talks about the completion of God's creation of humanity. Um, the, the, the Adam is made in, the man is made in the first part of chapter 2 again. It, it, talks, it's just, it talks about the story twice. So if you know Genesis 1, each day of creation, Genesis 2 focuses on God's creation of humanity. But in a world that it says everything is very good, it says the man was alone. <laughs> and so he, God brings all the animals and says the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then here's where we want to focus. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the one humanity becomes two, male and female, becomes one flesh in marriage. It's a beautiful picture. This is an important definition for us to think about in marriage. And this is, this is how God set up human sexuality to work, male and female, one flesh, husband, wife. This is how it's supposed to work. Um, and in a perfect world before Genesis 3, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Things were still good. This definition that was in verse 24 is an important definition because Jesus uses it. In Matthew chapter 19, when he's asked a question about divorce, they, they, they're asking him whether or not they can, he can allow divorce for any cause, which means basically, I don't like you, so I don't want to be married to you anymore. Um, and instead of Jesus just saying, no, that's not the way it works, he presents what marriage is really about. He presents the Genesis ideal again. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's, he's, he's addressing the specific issue of divorce, but in doing so, in giving us this definition, he excludes all other definitions of marriage. 
Um, it's sometimes said that Jesus never talked about homosexuality. Jesus never talked about same-sex marriage. That's just not true. By saying this, he excludes any other way to think about marriage. As we, as we keep going, we see that sex is only for marriage in God's design. Uh, there's lots of places where we could see this in the scripture. We're going to just look at one. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. This is the only place where God has um, allowed for sexual activity. That is radically different than the world thinks, right? And before we get to the ways that we get this wrong, I want to remind us of one thing. We've talked so much about marriage, but this is, this is an important truth for us to remember, that to be single is not to be incomplete. Singleness is not incompleteness. Um, we, we sometimes present that as reality for, in, in the church and by, by some of the things that we focus on. And, and you know, we have, we, we rightly, we have, we, we want to see families be healthy and following God. We want to see children um, grow up in the knowledge of God. But we need to be careful that we don't exclude single people. Um, because if we're going to say what we're about to say about the truth of Scripture and what human sexuality is supposed to work, how that's supposed to work, we need to have a legitimate alternative <laughs> that actually works for real life. And that's the community of the church. We need to be people, a group of people where it's okay to be single because, you know what, think about this. Was Jesus married? No. Are we going to really say that Jesus missed the boat? <laughs> no. Um, we have evidence that Paul the Apostle is single for at least a portion of his life, if not the whole life, his whole life. Um, and he counsels the Corinthian church at a specific time in their history to say it's good for them to remain single as I am. So, but like, what we're really getting to is, how do we get this wrong? Sexual immorality. This is a term that we see in Scripture um, in several places. We saw it in that 1 Corinthians passage. We saw it in the Hebrews passage. It's a, it's a, it comes from the Hebrew word, not Hebrew word, Greek word, porneia, which is a term that is basically used for all kinds of heterosexual activity that's outside the bounds of marriage. So that would include things like actually having sex outside of marriage, but things like pornography, things like lust, would all fall under that blanket. And I want us to think about this for a minute because I think we sometimes focus on how homosexuality is sin, and that's, and that's what we're going to say. Um, but we have very inconsistent um, measures by which we measure sin. We're going to say, a lot of times we will think of that as that's like the worst sin, worst sin ever because I can't identify with that at all. Like that's, that's for me, that's not a struggle. That's, that kind of sin, not a struggle. Lust? Oh yeah. For most of us, this is the way sin has broken us, has broken our sexuality. And we need to remember that sin leaves us all condemned. <laughs> the, the, what God demands from us, we do not measure up to apart from the work of Jesus Christ. So, I encourage you, think of yourself as a sinner and think of yourself as someone who's been forgiven. Think of other people as someone who's a sinner and someone who either is forgiven because they've trusted in Jesus Christ or can be forgiven if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. We, we need to not be so inconsistent. Like some of us are a lot more okay with someone moving in with their girlfriend than we are with someone who's gay. And, that, and that's just not the way the Bible talks about it. It's all sin. <laughs> so we, we, go, we get this wrong turn, 
Another wrong, and we, we, this is the way Romans 1 talks about it. This is an important passage for us to understand. Um, we're going to pick it up in the middle because of time. But it says, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. He's talking about sin as a result of one basic sin, idolatry. That we replace God with other things. And that we choose to do things our way rather than God's way. And so the first way he talks about it in this passage is that he turns them over to give them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So that's sort of big bucket, same, the kind of stuff we're talking about with sexual immorality. Everybody. Then he talks about specific applications of that in, later in the chapter. Um, and here's where we, get, where we get to our topic at hand, homosexuality. Um, this is something that's um, prohibited throughout the scripture. You see it in Leviticus. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Abomination is a word that is used in the, the Old Testament to mean totally out of bounds. Um, it says it the same thing a couple chapters later. Basically the same wording. If man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And then the second part of the verse is something I want to address because this is a common objection we see in our culture too. Um, they bring this part of the passage up. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And this is used as an excuse to say that what the Bible says is completely irrelevant about sexuality because it says that we should die. Um, when we read the scripture, we have to remember, particularly in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, we have God giving instructions to a particular people for a particular reason. He gives them the law. They're supposed to be a distinct people. And there are some other things in the Old Testament law that we would see as a little nuts. But as God progressively reveals more and more, and then we see Jesus come, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. I came to bring about the purpose of the law. And so everything is different because of Jesus. The Old Testament law does not apply in the same way that it once did because Jesus has died on the cross and is risen from the grave. Um, there's what, what they call, what we call the new covenant. The, the, the law is instead of written on stone tablets as it was in the Old Testament, it's written on our hearts. But to get back to Romans 1, to get to the issue at hand, so we saw sexual immorality, impurity is one of the ways that the fall messes us up. Here, here's, the, here's the other, the next part. This reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for, for one another. <sighs> Double tap. Once. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is, these are some hard words. Um, but we see something in this passage that we didn't see in the Leviticus passages. He equates, Leviticus passages talk about male and male relationships. This passage talks about female-female as well. He kind of, Paul understands them to be basically the same in the way that they are sinful. But as we see in both of those instances in Romans 1, for impurity, turns us, he turns sinful humanity over to their impurity. He turns sinful humanity over to dishonorable passions as in, that is described there. Sinfulness shows up in our broken sexuality. We're, we're affected by sin. And this is, this, is, this is sometimes hard for us to get a grasp on because we've never known anything different. We, we, 
Our sin seems normal to us, right? And for those, for many who, those who struggle with same-sex attraction, who are gay, lesbian, whatever, that's, that's the way they think they've always been. And I, I really can't argue with that. Because sin affects us to the point that we were born this way. And that doesn't make it okay. We live in a culture that says, hey, if it's natural, that's what you should do, right? <laughs> the scriptures say it doesn't matter. We're all broken from the day we were born. We need a savior. But I think it's important that we realize that this part of Romans 1 connects with the previous part of Romans 1. Homosexuality is not something that's just a completely other category of sin. This is something that is deeply connected to how we are affected by the fall. Whether it's the first way with impurity, whether it's homosexual desires, whether it's to, to keep moving along in this chapter... <laughs> He gives a whole bunch of other lists, a list of a whole bunch of other sins. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with, and the list goes on and on and on. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the whole point of Romans 1 through 3 is to say, that humanity is without excuse before God and we need God to do something. And part of the ways that our brokenness shows up is in our sexuality. We are all condemned. But to move on, through the work of the Spirit, we can pursue something different. Um, for believers... We're to pursue holiness. Next big part of this picture. We're being made more like Jesus. This is the story of that. what God does when he saves us is not just leave us neutral. He begins to change everything about our lives. And that work is not done until we are with Jesus. But change is really happening for those who have their faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it looks painfully slow. Sometimes it looks really fast, but we are being changed. And we need to pursue that. So holiness, big word, so we use a lot in church. To be set apart for God, it means that we are actively fighting against the sin in our lives. That we are repenting when we do sin. We are turning from our sin and turning towards God. That we are doing the things that are necessary to fight our sinful desires in our life. That's what to pursue holiness looks like. This is a call that we have, and I forgot to put the verse in there. Um, in 1 Peter, reminds us of an Old Testament quote which says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. God says this. The expectation for believers in Jesus Christ is that we pursue holiness. We are to live like those who have been saved. We are to repent and fight against our sinful desires. And that should be characteristic of us if we follow Jesus. So, some parts to that um, have to do with we are to turn from sin towards God. If we look at Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin have the control in your life. Do not present your members, your body, your soul, your thought life, everything about you. Don't present it to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Christians are supposed to look different. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law, but under grace. So this idea that we see in Romans 6 through 8 um, is that it's really inconsistent for a believer to continue to sin 
without fighting against it. Like, we're, we're, he uses several examples, but this is like not who we are anymore if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He says this later in the book of Romans, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Think about this. How often do we do things that put us in the position to sin? Part of pursuing holiness is to identify what those things are and work against the things that put us in that position to begin with. This is what we're supposed to pursue. We're supposed to pursue life by the Spirit, not by our sinful desires. Galatians 5 talks about this in, great, um, in a great way. And it contrasts the life that's lived by the flesh with the life that's lived by the Spirit. But I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. <laughs> For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And this is a list that should look real familiar to us at this point, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, lots more. And more. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then a passage that may be familiar to some of us. The contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, the life that's lived by the Spirit shows itself up in this way. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. This is, this is the life we're supposed to live by the, the way the Spirit wants us to, I'll use that hand, um, the, the, the way the Spirit wants us to live, not by the way our flesh wants us to live. We need to pursue holiness. Talk, Paul talks about it in Titus this way, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the passions that come from our flesh and come from the world that are opposed to God and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. While we wait, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. There's a couple of things I want us to notice about that passage. Go, to go back. We are waiting for the day when that struggle ends. Because that pursuit of holiness doesn't end until we're with Jesus, whether that's by dying or when Jesus returns. This is not a battle that will be won in this life. We need to remember that when we struggle, because we're, we're going to struggle. To not struggle is to just give in. Um, and when we, when we talk about this particular issue, this is, this is an important thing for us to remember that the life of a believer is supposed to be lived out in holiness. We are saved by what God has done and it's supposed to show up in our lives. So as we, 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 we talked about, first, the good news of the gospel. We talked about God's plan and the way we get it wrong for sexuality. We're talking about holiness. The last big picture part is the church, the community of Jesus' followers. Um, we saw that in that last verse, that there's a people that are being made for God of the people who have been saved. Um, and just, there's a lot of things we talk about the church, but just a couple things that are important for us to remember about the church is that when, God, when Jesus sets up this community um, of believers, he tells them, his followers, that they should be known for their love, not for their anger, right? Um, he says this for each other. He says to his disciples, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus commands 
Um, and, and, and it shows up in speaking the truth in love. This is an important reality for us that sometimes we err on one side of that or the other in the way that we talk to one another and the way that we talk to other people um, outside of the church. We either speak the truth without love or we call something love that is not based in truth. Right? And truth and love are very intimately connected. It's, it's not love if you're not telling the truth. <laughs> and it's not really truth if you're not loving the person. We sometimes don't think about it that way. But if we think about how God views people and we don't show them love, then we're not telling the truth. Other ways that... Um, in, in uh, if we think about the story of the Good Samaritan, we don't have time to get into that, but this was a response. Jesus asked somebody what the law is all about. Um, and, they, and this is the answer. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, and the second part, and your neighbor as yourself. This is a, something we see up in Jesus' teaching a lot of times. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we're to love each other, those who are Jesus' followers. We're to love our neighbor, and the story of the Good Samaritan tells us that everyone we meet is our neighbor. No exceptions. Um, and then Jesus tells us something even harder. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, which in Jesus' time they had a very, very bad reputation. Don't they even do the same thing? We're supposed to be known for our love, not just for one another, but our love for our world, and even for those who hate us. That's one piece of thinking about some things about the church. Another is that church leaders have a responsibility to protect the church against false teaching, against other threats to the church. This is important when we think about this particular question about membership, because um, that's who vets people for membership, is church leaders. And it just says, the, the one th phrase I want us to think about there is, keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Um, this is this is an important. That's me. That's my beard talking, or my battery dying. One of the two. Um, so as we think about the church, that there's leadership who has a responsibility to protect the church. And another thing that we need to think about in regards to the church um, is that the church should be a safe place to struggle with sin. Not a safe place to sin, where you will never be confronted with your sin. And some of us pretend that the church is like that, don't we? We put up our mask and say, yeah, I'm good, you're good too, right? We don't need to talk about our sin. That is like not the picture of the church at all that we see in the New Testament. We see a church where people are actually called out for their sin. But with this, like it says in this passage, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Like, we sometimes want to, when we see sin in other people, we just want to say, You're, you are the weakest link, goodbye. And we, and we just want to cut them off. But the whole way that um, we deal with sin and church discipline is supposed to be with the, the goal of restoration to the community. So as we struggle with sin, we're supposed to be honest about our sin. James 5, 16 said, Therefore, confess your sins 
to one another. When's the last time you confessed your sins to anybody other than your spouse? (laughs) Most of us, that's been a long time, (laughs) if ever. And sometimes with our spouse, we don't even do that. We try to pretend like everything's okay, but they know. (laughs) They know. So we see some, some big things, big picture things. Our place is humanity. This is who we, who we are. We saw human sexuality, what that's supposed to look like, how we get that wrong. We see that we're supposed to pursue holiness as believers and as a church, and we're supposed to, who, some things about who we're supposed to be as the church. So now it's time to answer the question. How would this church respond if a gay married couple came to church and would like to become members? We need to think about this in two different ways, I think. Um, first, if we ended the question after if a gay married couple came to church and put the question mark there, that's a different answer than the full question. We, we need to be welcoming, as we should be to anyone We are all sinful human beings. We should welcome someone to come and sit and listen to the preaching of God's word. No matter who they are. And we need to do it in a way that's more than just, we're going to let you be here. (laughs) We're going to barely tolerate your presence. We should be known by our love. And love doesn't mean acceptance of sin. But we should be known for our love. Um, But the reality is that there is a difference when we add that second part to the question. And it's something that our world doesn't want to hear. Um, we would not be able to welcome a gay married couple into membership here at OLBC. Um, Not because we don't love them, but because we love Jesus and we care about what God's word says and we don't think it is the best for someone's flourishing for them to continue to live in sin. Now, I say that if a gay married couple add a couple qualifiers if they do not express as a desire for repentance. Right? Like, people struggling with sin and not really knowing how to deal with it, we need to help. Right? Because God views marriage differently than our culture does, um, what that probably would look like, repentance would probably look like divorce in a legal sense. Um, which is incredibly, you know, this is someone, if you think about this, this they would have built lives together. That's, that's painful. Sometimes dealing with sin is painful. We need to be a church that loves people along that process. Um, but the reason they wouldn't, become, wouldn't be able to become members is because we ask members to agree to our doctrinal statement the things that we believe and hold dear as a church, that we believe from the scriptures, or at least that they don't promote views that are opposed to it. And based on a couple of the points in our doctrinal statement that say this, under the importance of living for God, we believe that we are called with a holy calling to walk, not after the fleshly nature, but after the spirit. And so live in the spirit that we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, And then what we believe about marriage and morals. We believe that marriage is a divinely instituted, unconditional covenant between one man and one woman. We oppose all homosexuality, we oppose homosexuality, adultery, all fornication, and unscriptural divorce. And if we're going to be consistent, people who are living in unrepentant sin in these areas would be excluded. A lifestyle of unrepentant homosexual behavior is incompatible with what we teach as a church. So
So as we think about this, we, we need to think about this in a way that takes into account what we have just been. If we're going to say something that hard to people, we need to remember who God has created them to be and that they are not beyond God's grace. Sometimes when we are confronted with the reality of our sin, that is what causes us to lean on grace. Um, Sometimes we need to tell people hard things. But I want us to think about more than just how would church leadership deal with this. And we're going to wrap it up. I know I'm going long. I'm sorry. The reality is that most of our interaction with those who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, continue the acronym, um, is going to be outside of these walls. How are you going to treat people who are image bearers of God? How are you going to treat people who are image bearers of God even though they're sinful? Will you demonstrate love? Will you show them that Jesus is the way they can be made whole? Will you show them the one who can forgive their sin and give them new life? Let's let that sit for a second, then I'm going to pray. God, your truth is unchanging. God, we live in a world that teaches something very different than what we've just looked at. We pray that you would give us courage to speak your truth and courage to love. Help us to identify our wrong assumptions that have been confronted by the truth of your scripture today. Help us turn for them. Help us not view other sin as somehow different than ours, but let us all be pursuing the holiness that you want from us. We love you. We pray in your son's beautiful name. Amen.